Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As the world focuses on the firepower Russia is massing against Ukraine, including deploying a fleet of warships to the Black Sea and starting joint exercises in Belarus, the most important lesson from this episode may be how Russia is employing decision-centric warfare by integrating a broad sweep of its power to give itself, at any time in this crisis, the greatest ability to shape events. Joining us to discuss what the Russians are doing and why the Pentagon and America's allies, no matter where they are, should be paying attention, is Brian Clark, a retired United States Navy commander and submariner who is now the director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute Think Tank. He and his colleague Dan Pat recently wrote a piece that ran on the Defense One website. Russia is teaching a masterclass on decision-centric warfare. Brian also argues that the lessons from Russia will be critical if the United States is going to do a better job deterring a rising China. Brian, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks, Fago. It's great to be here. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Huntington Ingalls Industries sponsored our coverage of the Surface Navy Association's recent conference and uh, trade show. Uh, Brian, thanks uh, so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on the program. Uh, you're one of the leading thinkers on decision-centric uh, warfare that I believe is, is one of the most uh, important concepts we have now. As the fundamental nature of conflict changes, it moves more into the gray zone. It's in cyber already, it's in space. And everybody's focusing on the hot zone part of this, as opposed to all the capabilities you need to set up in order to have decision flexibility, right, ultimately. I want to start off, and I know that we, every time you and I talk about this, our audience has to hear your brief explanation of what decision-centric warfare is. But for those who are tuning in for the first time or don't know what it is, what briefly is decision-centric warfare and why is it so important? Uh, yeah, so Vago, a decision-centric warfare is an approach to military operations where uh, the goal is to you know, get an optionality advantage over your opponent. So get more options available to you than your opponent has available to him. Uh, the object of there is to get a decision-making advantage. So if I have a, a lot of tools available to me, I've got a lot of options available to me. I, I could choose many courses of action to proceed towards my objective. Uh, my opponent has few or none uh, to be able to counter me. Then obviously they're going to spend their time uh, in a defensive crouch, attempting to prepare for many different uh, potentialities that could occur. That decision-making advantage makes it a lot easier for me to pursue my objective because then I can choose a course of action that I think is most advantageous to get to the point where I want to be. Uh, also, it, it allows me to uh, you know, perhaps um, overwhelm my opponent with so many courses of action or so many options that they uh, seek an off-ramp you know, to the confrontation. Um, and uh, I, I think we could talk about some examples of where we see that in the real world today. But that's the generalized approach. Is it's getting this advantage in terms of options putting my opponent into a series of dilemmas and having to choose uh, between preparing for different options uh, that, that allows them, that forces them to spread their effort out and, and uh, prevents them from being able to gain the initiative. 
and it's interesting you mentioned uh, initiative, right? Because almost everything about this crisis uh, is the Russians showing initiative on a constant basis, as opposed to the United States. And of course, uh, China uh, and uh, Moscow are increasingly in league, right? So now, uh, and, and indeed with the North Koreans and the Iranians, uh, right? There are now different levers that these four nations can pull to distract uh, the uh, administration's uh, attentions, right? And we focus on sanctions and diplomacy and talking, whereas uh, they have a, a slightly more muscular view of, of how to go about things. And I want to get into that uh, in a minute. The Russians have always been leading thinkers on warfare, uh, Brian, whether it's the concept of stealth, the Grasimov doctrine, uh, I mean, many, many others uh, over the course of, of, of history. What are the Russians doing that that's so masterful and worth emulating, as you and Dan note? Yeah, so that so if you look at how the Russians are approaching uh, Ukraine, uh, they are presenting a wide variety of threats, you know, to Ukraine. So you know, not just troops on the border uh, at in the Donbas, right? So they've got the the troops they're positioning off in the east. They've also got troops coming from Belarus to the north. They've got amphibious forces coming from the south in the Black Sea. Uh, they've got you know multiple areas that they can attack from just using ground troops. They also have the gray zone effort, you know, with the little green men that they've been pursuing for the last, uh, I guess, almost a decade at this point, um, in the east uh, in the Donbas, uh, which is another tool at their disposal at a lower level of escalation. They've got cyber uh, operations, which they've been executed against Ukraine already at their financial system, at some of their electrical grid. Um, they have um, some electromagnetic warfare tools they've got available. And I've heard you know, Michael Kaufman uh, and Sam Bedette talk on your program about uh, a lot of the electromagnetic warfare tools that, that the Russians have available to shut down uh, Ukraine's mobile phone networks, for example, or to take them over and actually route them through Russian servers. So now you can spy and manipulate uh, communications that the Ukrainians are using. Um, and then beyond that, they've got some tools that don't even you know, directly affect Ukraine. They've got tools to impact the ability of uh, allies or, or partners of Ukraine to come in on, on their behalf and attempt to deter or defend Ukraine from Russia. So for example, um, threatening energy supplies to Central Europe in the middle of winter with high energy prices are being a problem. Uh, they've got ways of uh, impacting uh, you know, the ability for communications to go across the Atlantic because they've been doing this uh, undersea reconnaissance program for decades where they can impact the ability of fiber optic cables to operate correctly. So they've got multiple tools available to them. Um, and if you're the US and its coalition of the willing, um, you're having to prepare for a lot of those different options at different levels of escalation, which puts you into a series of dilemmas. And we can already see those dilemmas playing out where some options um, upset uh, the allies, uh, some options make other options impossible to execute. Um, and the Russians can simply keep pulling these strings until they get everything into, a dis into an advantage advantageous position for them and then pull the trigger on which of those uh, operations seems like it's the most likely to result in either you know, Ukraine falling or Russia gaining some territory that they want. And obviously the Russians, right, have multiple different things they're trying to accomplish, right? In the home front, uh, Russia is trying to show strength at a time when uh, the Russian economy is in trouble, right? An aftermath of a whole series of sanctions that have been uh, imposed. Obviously his situation is going to get a lot worse. Uh, I want to talk to the question of will uh, in, a, in a little bit uh, as well, right? The other one is to fracture uh, NATO, uh, the other one is to try to make Biden look weak uh, at a time when his popularity is already low, uh, right? I mean, so there are multiple different uh, objectives he's trying to reach. But if you actually look at it, it appears that his actions might actually already be backfiring, right? Russians now are asking, wait a minute, why would we be fighting our Ukrainian 
uh, brothers, right? Even if his argument that NATO is a threat has a lot of traction, it's brought the NATO alliance uh, together uh, even, even more so. And the bringing together, um, I think a lot of people would recognize was President Biden and his work with the Germans, with the French and a number of other uh, countries, uh, as well as the diplomacy the United States has done uh, and its allies have, have done. Um, I mean, ultimately, what is the ragged edge of where decision-centric warfare actually starts to backfire? And is that where Putin is right now, right? I mean, in the Atlantic, Elliot Cohen wrote a great piece, you know, uh, stop fighting his war, fight your war, right? Put them on the defensive as opposed to always being on the back foot. Uh, right. So, so there's a couple of interesting things that come out about that is, um, you know, so for one, it kind of shows that decision-centric operations, this idea of getting this advantage in terms of options relative to your opponent, um, you know, is a, is a, is a two-way street, right? So you've got to simultaneously increase your options as we've seen Russia do while trying to foreclose options for your enemy. So they've been trying to do that by fracturing the NATO alliance, get, you know, Germany to back out because they don't want to lose their energy supplies. Um, so that that effort has been going on and, and the Russians have maybe not been pursuing the, uh, the foreclosing of, of U.S. options nearly as well as they've been pursuing their own options. Um, the other part of it, as you said, so at some point, though, you got to pull the trigger. And I think that's the, you know, the, the, the criticism that we've received on the concept of decision-centric warfare sometimes is, well, you know, at some point, you got to come up with a defeat mechanism. How do you win? You know, and Frank Hoffman's talked about this. And, and I think that's a great point is, you know, okay, you got to turn this advantage into some kind of, you know, gain, um, or else it eventually might fizzle out. Uh, so Russia may have you know, kind of missed that window when they had this opportunity to exploit the, the fact that the allies were on the back foot. They didn't have a lot of good responses. They were not in a position to retaliate or even defend Ukraine. Um, and we may be you know, passing that expiration date now. And so I think you know, Putin's going to decide pretty quickly whether they, he wants to you know, kind of retrench or to you know, re, re, recalibrate the situation to make it more like a frozen conflict, or if he's going to actually go and try to take some amount of territory, perhaps in southern Ukraine, that would allow him to call it a win uh, and then be able to you know, back off and, and kind of restore a due status quo. The point is that he may have actually achieved uh, maybe some of his gains, although I, I find that, that, again, and Elliot, I think, deserves credit in saying this, we have a tendency of sort of ascribing him as some sort of real genius. But I mean, actually, most of his moves tend to backfire on him. Right. I mean, even if uh, they may help, uh, you know, domestically in terms of his messaging and certainly, you know, use that has applied force uh, in the Russian near abroad in the former Soviet empire, whether it's Armenia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, uh, you know, and indeed Ukraine to try to recreate the Soviet empire, you know, he is further alienating. Ukrainians, he's giving NATO new purpose, uh, you know, so, you know, even though the, the criticism is that if he stands down now, people will say like, see, false alarm, this was all unnecessary, let's get back to business, uh, business as usual, um, you know, in, in which case he, he might have, again, sort of renewed decision advantage. Um, let me take you to the point of what the United States government has to do at this point, right? The administration is working in national security, national defense, space, cyber, I mean, all of these strategies are under work uh, currently. Uh, the uh, NDS is expected to come out, right? I mean, the consensus view is, say, in about a month. Um, you know, how, how does the United States have to change its strategy if it's going to gain decision advantage uh, over its adversaries? Because again, the biggest criticism is the United States and the Western Alliance is doing less shaping than spending a lot of its bandwidth reactively. Um, we're, we're not setting 
the conditions and challenging our adversaries. Our adversaries are constantly challenging us, and we are defaulting to either sanctions or negotiation. And it's not abundantly clear that either of those two are having the desired impact on two nations that have capability and are sort of demonstrating will. They're willing to pay a price to do what it is they want to do, whether it's assassinating somebody or maybe even taking Taiwan. Uh, yeah, so I think so. A couple of things uh, that that you know come come to me from that conversation is so. One is uh, what this is showing is the character of warfare is changing a little bit, so that um, you know gaining uh, an advantage over your opponent maybe doesn't mean attrition nearly as much as it means putting your opponent into a series of dilemmas that force them to back down, right? So Russia is attempting to do that here. They, they would prefer to maybe gain, gain some influence in Ukraine without any bloodshed, or you get a more uh, amenable government in Kiev without any bloodshed. And use, they're using all these tools to try to get that. And they would prefer not to invade, as you said, because there's a lot of backlash that will result from that. Um, so they're going to try to come up with some way to achieve some uh, go, some gains without having to attrite a lot of their forces. And that's the same kind of thing you see happening in the Pacific with China, where China has been pursuing a lot of territorial and, and uh, uh, diplomatic gains or you know, influence in the region uh, by virtue of its gray zone operations, by virtue of its economic warfare, by virtue of its, its trade uh, advantages, um, and, and attempting to do that without having to have some kind of military altercation that results in destruction or bloodshed. Uh, so the decision-centric approach is intended to give you this ability to you know, operate you know, across multiple options and then force your opponent to maybe back down and you can maybe pursue which of those options are most advantageous to you and that don't necessarily rely on attrition. If we were in, you know, back in the attrition era of you know, World War II, the Cold War, where we just had to fight it out and it was going to be a battle to the death, then maybe the decision-centric approach would not be nearly as important. But we're seeing you know, the shift towards this kind of warfare we're seeing from Russia and China is evidence that you know, maybe the next confrontation is going to be much more like what we're seeing, you know, from them today, as opposed to, you know, World War II fight to the death. Um, so when it comes to the national defense strategy, uh, one of the things we need to look at is how do we expand the range of options available to the United States? Uh, and that involves both uh, thinking about uh, scenarios other than just the uh, large-scale invasion of Taiwan um, that, that we've kind of built as our main planning scenario. So you've got to plan for a variety of different scenarios and maybe take risk in that most uh, challenging, you know, high-end scenario to try to reduce risk in all the other scenarios that we might face so that we don't leave that playing field open. Um, because right now China is able to keep grinding away at our allies because we're not willing to compete or, or even, you know, confront them at lower levels of escalation than, you know, big war over Taiwan. So one thing is expand the range of scenarios we're looking at. Another thing is expand the tools that you've got available to you. So China and Russia both showed a willingness to have these kind of gray zone forces, smaller scale military and paramilitary units, uh, even proxies in some cases. They're designed to operate at lower levels of escalation where you can you know, continue to slowly accrete you know, territory and influence at your opponent's expense without really getting to the point where you know, allied uh, military intervention becomes uh, you know, available or even, even a pretext for that is provided. So having more tools available, the national defense strategy could drive us to, we need to think about having some more capacity at the lower end for these other scenarios that we're not right now leaving on the table. Um, and then, uh, then a willingness to use it. And so I think what we're seeing right now uh, with Russia is the US is unwilling to use some of the tools it might have available to it to force Russia to reconsider its concentration on Ukraine. You, the Russians right now are deploying a lot of their top high-end military forces from the east uh, and from the north to go to Ukraine. And they're gonna hang out there threatening Ukraine for the next several months. 
well, if we could present some challenges to Russia on its uh, its uh, exterior in the east or in the north and maybe make them rethink that, there would be potentially a, a way of, of putting them back on their back foot. So, so that idea is uh, what Cybercom does today with persistent engagement. They, they, they persistently encounter the opponent in cyberspace and are pushing back on them. We need to think about maybe expanding that idea and using it more in the, in the non-cyber world, uh, which is a way of, of not just uh, having options, but expressing your willingness to use some of those options to expand the type of things that the enemy has to prepare for. Before we go on, uh, just a quick word from our sponsors. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control. Um, wrote uh, a report uh, that is on the Hudson Institute think tank. Can the United States regain battlefield superiority against China, applying new metrics to build uh, an adaptable and resilient military? Walk us through your approach. Yeah, so this came out of an op ed that. Um, General Brown and General Berger, the chief of staff of the Air Force and the Commandant of the Marine Corps wrote last year in the Washington Post asking about why we can't have new readiness metrics for the US military. Because uh, today, today US military is largely rated uh, in terms of readiness uh, on its availability. You know, so do you have the, do units have the right level of training, the right fit and fill of personnel? Have they crossed all the wickets in terms of the material condition of their equipment? Um, and then uh, we have this, you know, way of measuring their combat capability, which is based on, you know, lists of, of performance metrics or mission essential tasks that their immediate commander above them, you know, provides a subjective grade on. Um, but because that subjective grade is, you know, kind of mushy, people tend to focus on the more material dimensions of, of uh, readiness. So we usually, when we say readiness, normally that translates into availability. Is the, is the unit ready materially? And has it got the right training and the right number of people? Um, so their frustration was, well, that way of measuring availability doesn't tell me anything about whether it's actually able to contribute to the types of operational concepts we're pursuing, like with the joint warfighting concept or cross-domain operations. Um, and it doesn't uh, help me make decisions with regard to changes I might want to make um, in the force in the very near term, you know, over the next between now and the next deployment cycle that could improve the ability of the force to support those operational concepts. You know, so I'm if I'm left with a you know a, a dollar and, and I got to choose whether that dollar goes towards um, making the unit more available because I can do some maintenance on a on a piece of equipment or I can get another person through training or I can put that dollar to buying a box that allows the unit to maybe operate with other units more effectively or maybe as a new weapon that the unit could use to to be able to deal with different threats. You know, the the dollar usually goes to the readiness bucket because it's easy to quantify the value of that. Um, whereas the value of incorporating this new weapon or communication system is a lot less ephemeral. So that, that's the, that was our frustration. So this paper talks about a new way to measure readiness that thinks about it in terms of um, you know, going back to decision-centric warfare, the ability of that unit to support the operational concepts that the U.S. military is pursuing, which are much more about, as JADC2 discusses, uh, being able to uh, interoperate with a larger number of other units, being able to operate, oper offer more options to commanders, you know, more combinations of sensors and shooters that allow you to uh, get a decision-making advantage over your adversary. So we offer a way to measure that and quantify it and allow you to make traits analysis, you know, basically choose if I want to buy another weapon or another communication system for this unit, or if I want to spend money on, you know, training for uh, the unit's personnel, you know, you can now maybe measure the value of those, those trades 
uh, in a more quantifiable way using this way of measuring readiness. And so as the administration puts its budget together and as, uh, right, I mean, they have said, even though Russia, Russia, Russia remains a problem, that it is about China, China, China. Uh, and, and indeed, I think French President Emmanuel Macron deserves some credit in trying to build up European capabilities, uh, even though there are some people who think that it is anti-American, it's actually remarkably pro-American. He's saying, by definition, the Americans have are unique in the capabilities they have to go to the Pacific, and that's where they're going to flow. We as Europeans have to do a much better job in the Mediterranean, in the Middle East, in Africa, uh, and in Europe to pick up uh, some of these uh, burdens, because we have the kind of forces that actually may be better suited for this challenge, whereas the United States does have the highest end forces in order to be able to uh, you know, prosecute something on the other side of the planet in the Western Pacific. Um, to, to that end, what are some of the, how does, how does, Brian, what you're arguing reflect itself in capability and also philosophy? Because this administration is uh, putting climate first, right? I mean, there isn't a strategic document that doesn't have climate first. Sometimes that's appropriate. For example, if you're dealing with a Pacific strategy and you want to, you know, take into account climate change, which is integral and threatening uh, the, the, you know, is existential for some places in the region. Uh, on the other hand, that's not the singular metric, nor are sanctions the number one weapon, nor is diplomacy. Ultimately, you have to have hard military capability that's credible in order to have all of the other arms to be successful, right? And you also need economic health. You know, I, I think the economy is in fundamentally good shape, but inflation is very high uh, and the debt is is very large. Um, you know, how, how does the administration need to be thinking about this and how does it then in turn have to shape the capability decisions uh, ultimately, um, you know, absent which you don't really have a lot of decision centric ability. Right. Yeah. So I think that's, that's a great point. So when you think about uh, trying to, you know, because I'm arguing that the national defense strategy should highlight you know, looking at different scenarios other than just the the most you know stressing you know high end one, and looking at uh, force designs that add more tools at the lower level of of escalation. Um, so you could think about our, our allies as a great place, as a great source resource, and a great set of uh, intellectual capital that look at those other scenarios and that offer those other tools, right? Because uh, our allies are not necessarily preparing to fight World War III in the you know first inside the first island chain. Um, but they're thinking about other scenarios that they might have to address. So they've got the, the kinds of uh, maybe smaller scale forces, um, the electromagnetic warfare, the um, some of the cyber tools, certainly some of the ground units and naval units that would be useful at those lower levels of escalation and could be used to provide more options to a coalition commander that's employing them. Um, so I think that your defense strategy, when it looks at these, other, when it tries to expand the range of scenarios and expand the range of tools that we try to leverage, needs to highlight the fact that the allies provide some of those tools. And, and don't think of the allies as just this sort of you know, spare tire that we can bring on when we need them uh, if, we, if we have a, a shortfall in our own force, but think of them as being integral and providing a set of tools that maybe we don't actually have, uh, whether it's geographic dis you know, disadvantage or, or, or a capability disadvantage that just doesn't exist in our force. Um, and I think, you know, getting to the readiness you know, metric that we talked about, um, we should be incentivizing um, our, you know, investments uh, and, our, and our units when they are preparing their, themselves for deployment to improve their ability to work with allies. So if you think about, you know, the goal is to expand the range of options available to the commander when you get out to the field, that means making sure that your unit can work with other elements of the joint force. 
that also means your unit needs to be able to work with elements of the coalition force. Um, obviously, as an individual unit commander, you've got a limited ability to impact that. But folks in the Pentagon that are making budget decisions, if you want to raise the readiness of the force, and the readiness of the force depends in part on its ability to work with units from other services and from other, other nations, there's a way of incentivizing those, those investments that could be ways to unlock um, new effects chains, if you will, um, that would be available only if you leveraged what a, uh, an ally might have to bring to the table. Um, and and one of the reasons why, right, uh, it's it's great to do JADC2 and certainly get the United States military on the right page. You've been kind enough to join us several times for those conversations, as has Todd Harrison and others. Uh, but one of the challenges is whether or not we're bringing our allies and partners uh, aboard or whether or not we may end up causing kind of an interoperability disconnect, as has historically happened, as the United States has sort of lunged forward. Uh, and then, you know, I mean, there are some allies and partners who are very, very happy that they just, you know, got links later version of link 16 right so right. Um, it, that's good yes. it's better than not having it but right right and uh and uh, we just we just finished a paper on jadc2 that we're releasing uh, later this month and one of our conclusions was uh we need to focus on more than just the communications interoperability uh when it comes to allies and partners and that may, maybe by focusing so much on communications we've actually created the potential for you know cutting them out uh, as we move on to new communication systems and don't necessarily bring them along for the ride. And if we think of JADC2 JADC as more about integrating, uh, to use a tech term, across the whole stack, you know, so we're not just having to integrate on the communications level, we need to have a way of integrating, integrating our command and control, uh, integrating our logistics, you know, integrating our protection schemes, you know, who's going to defend whom, um, and then also thinking about, you know, integrating, um, you know, our, our ability to uh, coordinate operations uh, in the field. So, which is, which has to do with training and people as well as just technology. And so that's, I think one of the, one of the challenges JADC2 has created for itself is by focusing uh, on the communications technology end of it, that creates this potential for cutting your allies out and, and then, you know, when, when there's other opportunities to improve interoperability that maybe don't involve, you know, everybody getting TTNT or, um, you know, wideband gap filler or whatever. Um, let me let me ask you one last question on on um, capability and will. Right. It's, throughout military history, the, the single truism is that if you want to avoid conflict, your adversary has to be has to see visibly your capability as superior capabilities right? Economic capabilities, diplomatic capabilities, but ultimately hard power um, that that undergirds diplomacy. You can speak softly if everybody knows you've got a very, very big stick in, in, the, in, the, in the cabinet, right? Our mutual friend Tom Earhart would always say, you know, every once in a while, the superpower has to kill a gnat with a sledgehammer just to make sure everybody sort of understands what the, the <laughs> you know, the, the schoolyard right. rules are uh, here. Uh, and um, you know, and the other one is will, right? Russia has shown repeatedly, uh, in part because of weakness of the West, that actually I, I do have will to do these things. I am doing these things and nothing you do is sufficient to deter me from doing these things. So I am prioritizing my goals ahead of any potential pain associated with it. And again, our focus is all on conflict avoidance, reactivity, um, diplomacy and sanction, as opposed to putting hard power. And, and there is a concern that in the wake of this national defense strategy and national security strategy, that we are going to prioritize because we don't want to spend on the hard power, diminish the hard power elements of this. What is the philosophical approach that is necessary 
because you can talk decision-centric warfare, but ultimately if you don't have the capability and you repeatedly demonstrate a lack of will, it's actually not worth a hill of beans ultimately. Yeah, so that, that was one of the things we tried to address in, in, our, in the work we've done on this concept thus far is, um, so uh, one way of, of it displaying your will is to be persistently engaging as in the cybercom sense, uh, you're at your adversary. So be out there day to day with your military capabilities and be willing to accept the risk that, you know, the fact that you're operating in close proximity to your opponent could result in, you know, miscalculation could result in some, you know, incident like we've seen with the P3, EP3 rather, um, and maybe the impeccable um, Inc. C covers a lot of those uh, type of altercations. And we've seen them in the Black Sea. So being willing to get out there and, you know, mix it up to use that term with your opponent day to day and display the fact that you're willing to take the risk of something happening is one way of showing your will, because you're, you're saying to your opponent, uh, I made you, you, you may not be sure as to whether I'm going to unleash you know, World War III on you at any given day, but you can see that I'm willing to accept the fact that I may get into a dust up with you just because you're misbehaving in this area of the world. Um, so putting our forces in closer proximity to our opponents and being willing to go and do some of the things that we see them doing when they're gray zone operations is probably a key element to being able to effectively impart the fact that we have the will to back up our strategy. And I'm, I fear that you know any strategy that doesn't increase the forward-leaning uh, aspect of the U.S. military operations is going to you know continue to suffer this erosion of credibility that we're seeing already. Um, and so, for decision-centric warfare, one of the key things is being able to provide more tools at lower levels of escalation. Because one of the reasons we don't do this is because we only have these high-end tools designed for World War III, um, and if we put them at risk in these low-end you know kind of confrontations. Um, things get out of hand, you know, escalation could result. Also, they're expensive and I can't risk, you know, losing one of them in a, in a collision or, or in some kind of confrontation. Um, so, so if we had more tools at the lower levels of escalation, you feel more comfortable, you know, putting them at risk uh, and being able to show your opponent that you're willing to push back on their, you know, assertiveness or aggressiveness. Um, so it's, it's a combination of tools and, and operational you know, philosophy to use your term, um, that I think gives that imparts that will. And I think, you know, we've, we've put ourselves in sort of a corner because we designed our force to deal with only the high end, uh, war fight that we want to plan for. And that therefore seed every other, uh, every other scenario to the opponent, let them take the initiative. I understand that a little bit of this is chicken and egg, right. As, as how you're positioning it, but ultimately it also depends on whether or not the senior levels of an administration that have consolidated power at the white house, um, and I don't want to say sidelined uh, the, the the Pentagon, but certainly diminished its um, uh, diminished the administration's reliance on it. Um, ultimately, are you encouraged at at uh, how the administration has handled this and other crises that it sort of understands the the need for a more decision centric approach, or do you feel that the administration is on track to actually do things that will make it harder for the United States? not just from a decision-centric perspective, but actually from a deterrence perspective. Yeah, so what I see from them is a willingness to um, you know, employ di diplomacy and at least sanctions you know, more aggressively you know, than past administrations have been, which has been good. I mean, it's been, as you said, they had some success in bringing NATO back together, you know, maybe bringing new countries into NATO like you know, Finland and Sweden, um, and, and mustering a coalition and getting them all together to be able to counter Russians' efforts. Uh, 
so that's good that they were able to mount that kind of you know diplomatic effort uh, and then employ some sanctions. The problem is the decision-centric approach involves you know, try to really expand your options as much as possible and then orchestrating them in a way that puts your opponent into a series of dilemmas. Um, and I haven't seen that because the administration's been unwilling to use trade as one of the tools, um, you know, both in terms of carrots and sticks uh, against Russia or China. Um, they've been unwilling to use military operations, really, other than bolstering, you know, NATO allies, maybe with some, you know, small deployments. They haven't been willing to send our military forces in there to to push back on Russia aggression or give Russia things to worry about in other regions. You know, we haven't been deploying our forces, you know, maybe to, you know, the the Barents or to the North Atlantic and force them to have to reconsider their focus on the the middle or on the the Caucasus and, and uh, in, on um, Ukraine uh, or in the Pacific. You know, so we haven't been giving them other things to worry about. We've been sort of sticking to our knitting and and you know doing the, the military operations uh, focused on China and letting this Russia thing play out mostly diplomatically. So we we haven't really been in embracing that orchestration and maximization of options that decision-centric warfare would leverage. But we see Russia and we see China doing that. And that's why they're probably getting, uh, they're being more effective than we are in terms of this competition. Brian, it's always an honor and pleasure uh, having you on uh, and look forward to having you on again next month when your uh, report is out. Thanks very much and uh, give our best to everybody there at the team. Thank you very much, Vago. It's great being here with you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.